بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد point number 50 and point number 51 we'll do those two and then the rest of it is mainly about the divine decree so point number 50 Imam Tahawi says والشفاعة التي ادخرها لهم حق كما روي في الأخبار the Prophet's intercession, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that Allah deferred for them is true, as narrated in the traditions. This actually refers to a hadith which is related by Imam Tabarani from Ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu anhu, which says that Inna likulli nabiyin da'wa wa inni ikhtabatu da'wati shafa'atan li ummati yawm al-qiyamah. Every Prophet is given a prayer, a du'a, which is accepted. It's one of those instantly accepted du'as. And I have kept mine or preserved mine as a form of intercession or for the sake of intercession for my ummah on the day of judgment. Many of the other prophets, they used that du'a during their life. When Musa made his du'a, when Nuh made his du'a against his people and so on. The Prophet is saying that I'm keeping this one aside for the day of judgment as I will use that to intercede for my ummah on the Day of Judgment. This is talking about a very specific intercession. Many of the scholars, they mentioned that this is talking about the shafa'ah, uzma, which basically means the one on which the initial stage of the people where everybody will be just waiting for the accounting to begin. It will seem very long for a lot of people. Eventually a group of people will get together and they'll go to all the prophets and say that, intercede for us that Allah start the accounting so at least we can have a decision made about us in this place it's a very serious situation it will be so they'll go about doing this until eventually they end up with the Prophet ﷺ because every Prophet will be saying nafsi nafsi Isa ﷺ will finally direct them to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ will say ummati ummati he'll go and prostrate in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says that I will start to praise Allah with mahamid with praises that will be inspired to me there and there. It will be fresh praises that he didn't know before that will be given to him. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to him to stand up and ask to intercede and his intercession will be answered. That, they say, is the one which is specific for the Prophet So there's different types of intercession. This one that Imam Tahawi is referring to which the Prophet has kept back for the Day of Judgment is this great intercession. That is called the Maqam al-Mahmuda. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Asa an yaba'athaka rabbuka maqam al-Mahmuda, Surah al-Isra. The Shafa'a is established by a lot of proofs. There's an ijma' on it as well. And it's necessary to have iman on the Shafa'a because of the tawatur. It's been mentioned quite a bit, specific Shafa'a. The Mu'tazila don't believe in all of the shafa'a. Remember, they had their opinion that Allah has to punish the sinner for the amount of sins that he's committed and reward the good person for the amount of good deeds. In fact, they've even got a problem where two people who have absolutely the same amount of good deeds and the same amount of bad deeds, if any, like two exactly same people in terms of deeds, can Allah give one more reward just out of his benevolence if he wants to or not, they say no. He has to treat both of them equally. Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah said it's up to Allah. He can give one more than the other if he wants to. 
Yes, he's not going to unfairly treat the other one, he's going to give him his due, but he can give more to the other one if he wants to. So they have this issue that if you have intercession of somebody who's going to hellfire, then that means he's not going to be punished, that means Allah is not fulfilling what he is bound to fulfill. So the first one is the great one, which I just explained already. About the Prophet saying, Ana laha, ana laha, ummati, ummati. This one is accepted by all. And this one the Mu'tazila don't disagree with because it's just about starting the, the process. It's not about taking anybody from hell to paradise. So they don't have a problem with this one. The second one is about entering people into paradise without any hisab, without any accountability, without any reckoning. Some scholars say that this is specific with the Prophet ﷺ, that only he will be able to do that kind of intercession for people who just give them straight entry into paradise without even any questioning. Qadi, Ayad, and Nawi, that's what they say. Ibn Daqiq al-Eid is unsure about this. Ibn Hajar was also unsure about this. There's no real dalil that, there's no real evidence that this is specific with the Prophet ﷺ. So it could be for other Prophets as well. The third type of shafa'ah is for those who are destined for hell. Meaning, believers who are worthy of being punished. The intercession will be made for them and they won't enter hell. Qadi, Ayad and Ibn Subki say that this is specific with the Prophet ﷺ, though Nawawi is unsure. The fourth one is the ones who've already in the hellfire to take those out. Everybody agrees that this is not just with the Prophet ﷺ, this is others will be able to perform this form of intercession as well. And the fifth one is intercession to raise somebody's status in paradise. So they've already got a status, but to give them a higher status. This one also, Mu'tazila don't have a problem with. There's also others that have been mentioned, other types. So these are the main five that are mentioned. So that's why he said, the Prophet's intercession that Allah deferred for them is true as narrated in the traditions. And it's necessary for us to mention that Allah will give the Prophet some intercession. Basically what that means is that out of his discretion, he can forgive whoever he wants. Allah can forgive whoever He wants out of His discretion, even if they've been sinners, as long as they have iman. The next point, which is 51. The covenant that Allah made with Adam السلام, and his progeny is true. So now, from what's to come after death, this is going all the way back to what came before our birth or the creation before us coming into this world. This is talking about the Ahdu Alast, or the covenant of Alast, the covenant of Aunt I, your Lord. This is based on a hadith, and at the end of the hadith, it starts to talk about the decree. That's why Imam Tahawi, the next point he mentions after this, is about the decree. So it's a very smooth transition. So this covenant, what happened is, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَإِذْ أَخَذَ رَبُّكَ مِن بَنِي آدَمَ مِن ذُهُورِهِمْ مِن ذُهُورِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّتَهُمْ وَأَشْهَدَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ When your Lord took from the children of Adam, from their loins, their progeny, and made them to bear witness against themselves, that aren't I your Lord, they said, of course you are. Basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's hadith about this that's mentioned in great detail, which is related by Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. 
hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Umar radiallahu anhu, when he was asked about this verse, he said that, I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam being asked about this. He said that verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salam. Then he rubbed his back with his right and he took out his progeny. He took out his progeny and he said that these people are for paradise. Now listen to this carefully. And anything here which insinuates limb or movement on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, we make tafweed of that. He said, these people are for paradise. And they will do the actions of the people of paradise. That will be their practice. Then he rubbed the back of Adam, and from it he took out his progeny, another group. And he said that I have created these for the hellfire, and they will act like the people of hellfire. Meaning they'll do the actions of the people of hellfire. So up to here is the ahd. Somebody asked... The Prophet ﷺ, after hearing this, فَفِيمَ الْعَمَلُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ What's the point of action then, Ya Rasulullah? If it's all been decided, this group is for paradise, this group's for hell, what's the point of action? فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ إِذَا خَلَقَ, خلق الْعَبْدَ لِلْجَنَّةِ اسْتَعْمَلَهُ بِعَمْلِ أَهْلِ الْجَنَّةِ حَتَّى يَمُوتَ عَلَىٰ عَمَلٍ مِّنْ أَعْمَالِ أَهْلِ الْجَنَّةِ that verily Allah Azza wa Jal, when He creates a servant for paradise, then He puts him in the service or puts him into doing things like what the people of paradise do, the actions similar to the actions of the people of paradise, worthy of the actions of the people of paradise, or worthy of the people of paradise, until He dies on doing those actions that are worthy of the people of paradise, and then He is able to enter him by that into paradise, or He enters by that into paradise. When he creates somebody for the hellfire, then he uses him and he puts him into those actions. He allows him to go into those actions of those who are in the hellfire until they die on those actions and by that they are entered into the hellfire. Abu Isa Tirmidhi mentions that this is hadithun hasan. Now there's two things here. One is the ahd. Why was this ahd taken? Why was this covenant taken? Scholars explain that this was taken so that it would be a reminder on the Day of Judgment. We're made to forget it in this world. Can anybody remember this? Does anybody recall saying Bada? There were actually some people who said they could recall that. Now just because we can't recall it, if anybody wants to deny this, that, would be, that wouldn't be very sensible because there's lots of things that we know we went through and that we can't remember, like being in the embryonic stage. Who can remember that? Anybody remember being in the womb? Any have any re- recollection of that? So just because we can't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Allah says so in the Qur'an, so we believe in it. The benefit obviously is that this creation, created, they recognize Allah because that's their creation. I mentioned this before. I mentioned this the other day. Now we're made to forget it. On the Day of Judgment, we'll remember it as though it happened just yesterday. It'll be fresh in our minds. With that bit of information, the hujjah will be established on us. If somebody has not acted according to that and has disagreed and has not believed in Allah as their Lord, then they will see the contradiction in their life. On the day of judgment, they will see how they believed in it and where they came from and then what they did afterwards. So there's going to be nobody who's going to feel that they've been cheated on the day of judgment. Now obviously, if this was something we remembered and it was like true as a reality in this world, then the test of this world diminishes. 
So this is the wise purpose of Allah for making this something forgotten to us. He reminds us of it through the Qur'an, through the messengers. That this is the way I want you to be. I am your Lord and this is what I want you to do. And he even tells us that this happened even though you can't remember it. I'm telling you that you did this. That you confessed. So that's the Ahdu Alast. And we believe in that. Moving on to the second part of this hadith which takes us into the next section of this book as well. is about the divine decree. Now ponder over this. Just recall what I said yesterday about the difference between involuntary shaking of the hands and voluntary shaking of the hands. How we know and we feel that we have some free will. None of you have pushed along to coming to this class and you're just trying to get away but you can't, you're fixed to your place. It's something we did voluntarily. So it proves that we have a window of will that Allah has given us. Now this hadith says that these are for paradise, these are for hell. Where does that take free will? This person asked the Prophet ﷺ, فَفِيمَ الْعَمَلُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So the Prophet ﷺ gave a beautiful answer. And if we ponder over that, we will understand that it's not in our realm to ask. Why? To ask that if it's all been decided, then what's the point of action? Because that's a fatalistic attitude. The Prophet ﷺ clarified this by saying that if you're destined to paradise, then Allah will use you in the activities of the people of paradise. Meaning, people who are destined for paradise, that's the things you'll be doing as well. And if you're destined for hell, then that's the things you'll be doing. So if somebody wants voluntarily to do the actions of the people of hellfire, and they keep complaining that I'm doomed, I've been written, I was selected on the other side, meaning I was from that group who was doomed, then that's up to them. But they cannot say that nobody has the right until they die to say that I was doomed. Nobody. Now think about this. We have this information in front of us. Allah took these, made these two groups. This is for paradise, this is for hell. Can anybody, seriously speaking, say that I am from this group before they die? Because another hadith makes it very clear that sometimes there's just a hand span left between a person and paradise and the course changes and they go to hell. And, and the same hadith talks about that much of a distance left to hellfire for a person who's been sinning and disbelieving all of his life and then suddenly they change and they go to paradise. The time of the Prophet there's a battle going on. A person comes along, a non-Muslim, and he said that, Ya Rasulullah, should I embrace the faith first or should I go and join in the battle first? The Prophet ﷺ said, of course, take the shahada and then go. He took the shahada, he entered the battle and was killed nearly instantly, you know, very quickly. The Prophet ﷺ remarked that, Amila qalilan ujira kathiran. Did so little but got such a great reward. He never prayed, you know, never gave any sadaqah in Islam, never did any of the other deeds, but mashallah, martyrdom straight away paradise. Great reward. That's a change in a moment. All of his life a disbeliever. And the scholars actually explain about these two that this one happens a bit more, where a person's been bad all their life and they go to the good side, as opposed to being good all their life and suddenly change to the bad. Allah preserve us from that. Allahumma inna na'udhu bika min al-hawli ba'd al-kawr. It's very important that we seek protection from regressing, right, from going back. Alhamdulillah, the ulama mentioned from observation that that happens much less frequently, which is a good, good thing. Okay? So when we put this in front of us, is it right for anybody to say, I'm doomed until they actually die? 
come over, there's lots of space, jump ship, come over and be good. Nobody's stopping you. Don't doom yourself. Don't doom yourself. Be from the good side. Be from the su'ada. Be from the side that was destined for paradise. Nobody's stopping you. Once they go to the hellfire, once a person dies in a doomed state, then obviously they will recall and they'll say, well, these were my actions. I had the opportunity because everybody has free will. Now the thing is that people like Abu Lahab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an condemns him. Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin wa tab. The Prophet ﷺ was told about certain individuals that they would not believe. So where does free will go with that? So you see, I'm introducing the concept of free will and I'm introducing different difficulties that we have in, in some of the hadith that have been related. I'm trying to reconcile them. One thing let me say at the outset is that divine decree, qadr, is one of those issues that the Prophet ﷺ prohibited us from discussing in depth. He saw the two groups in the masjid discussing this. He said, don't, because you'll either come out as a qadariya or a jabariya, you know, as a fatalist or a libertarian. So it's not something that we have enough of a feed and programming to understand and comprehend. It's like trying to understand the essence of Allah. Though there are many aspects that we can understand and make something more clear for us so that we can live our life and have the correct belief. So I'm going to try to reconcile to the best of ability and the rest we're just going to have to leave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because we don't have that knowledge. This final point that I mentioned before this which was about Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab. Ulama mentioned that it's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala necessarily forced them to go wrong. They had freedom of will. They just lacked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's guidance and tawfiq. They were straying. And Allah was able to say this in the Qur'an and inform the Prophet ﷺ from before, even though these people had not died yet. Surah Al-Lahab was revealed before Abu Lahab died. He could have turned around and said, I'm a believer now. It'd be a great paradox. Because what the Qur'an is saying is that he's doomed and condemned. And he turns around and says, I'm a believer it becomes a great paradox, but obviously it never happened because Allah's words are accurate. How did Allah say these things if He's not forcing them in a particular way? He had knowledge. The ilm of Allah, remember? The association of the ilm of Allah with all of things known is from eternity. Before He's even created them. So based on that knowledge, the Qur'an, it was in His speech, it was revealed. تَبَّتْ يَدَىٰ أَبِي لَهَبٍ وَتَبْ مَا أَغْنَىٰ عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ until the end. So it was not that the free will was taken away from them. And had they even tried their best, they could not have done it. They just were not going to do it according to Allah. I mean, this is the one way that we can understand this. Going back to these hadith, as I mentioned, there's enough space in the path to paradise. So you can't say you're doomed until you actually come over. We are accountable. Now the question that arises is that Allah says, وَاللَّهُ خَلَقَكُمْ وَمَا تَعْمَلُونَ Allah created you and everything that you do. وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا أَن يَشَاءَ اللَّهِ That you cannot will accept what Allah wills. That's throwing further puzzle into this whole discussion. How do you deal with that if you've got free will? Again, this is one of those realms where we can't understand. One thing we know for sure that we feel that we have some free will. We're not forced to do everything in the way we do it. But when you look at it, it's Allah who gave us this free will. It's Allah who gives us the ability each time that I want to lift my hand and drop it. I mean, this five times that I've lifted and dropped my hand, Allah gave me the ability, He's in control each of these times. 
If you look at it from the perspective of Allah, then we are majboor. We are driven. We are controlled. Basically, we are free individuals, free willing individuals in the form of being forced under the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's like a realm within a realm. And you know, that's as much as I can say. And Allah knows best exactly what that relationship is. It's beyond us to understand. But the one thing is, we know we have free will and we will be accountable for it. Now dealing with free will, I can't say it's not permissible for a person to go into sin by saying that Allah has decreed that for me. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ which says that Allah has written down the portions of zina for each person that they will commit. Whether that means going all the way, full zina or zina of the eyes or ears or touch or whatever. Allah has written that. That doesn't mean to say that if a person feels like doing zina, that he feels, you know, that's because Allah has written, I'm going to go and do it. Right? So, in terms of the future, you can't do that. It's haram, it's wrong. It's, it's relying on something which cannot be relied on. Because we have accountability in that regard, we can abstain. However, once a person has made tawbah, let's say somebody did something wrong, then they made tawbah. Now retrospectively, they can rely on qadr. Like Adam salam did. When Musa salam addressed Adam salam and he said to him that, why did you eat from the fruit, from the shajara, whatever it was, Adam salam said, atalumuni, are you blaming me and censoring me for something that Allah had written on me? Now this was after the fact, after everything had been resolved and done and dusted, it was something done out of the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're not going into that discussion. The point is that Adam salam used qadr, used destiny afterwards. Once you've made tawbah of something, then we leave it to taqdeer. Then you don't say this, that and the others. The hadith says that if something goes wrong, then you don't say, say low this, low that, you know, if this, if that. Yes, you take a lesson and you think about it, but you don't cry over spilt milk as you say. You leave it to the taqdeer. So that's the way we deal with qadr. So you don't be like that person who came to Umar radiallahu anh and said, you know, I drank because Allah destined for me. You know, he hadn't made tawbah, he needed to be punished because that's a judicial thing of the Islamic system where somebody is caught in this state of drinking, then they're going to be whipped because that's a judicial thing. So hopefully that's clarified a number of things. A few more points. See the divine tablet. Allah had the pen right on that 50,000 years before creating the world, everything that was to occur. And then we do things. So it was written that we will have this class and so and so will attend it away from their rest times at home. That was all written. That you will with your free will come to this program. We come to this program. It goes in accordance to what's written. Doesn't that mean that we are again forced to do what's in the divine tablet or what's written for us? Now, part of that is then transcribed and allotted to us when we're in that embryonic stage. Of course, the reality of all of this is known by Allah. But one explanation that's given is that it's like a teacher who's taught his class for two years, for instance, or a year, gets to know the capabilities of each student. Test time is coming up. He takes a piece of paper and he puts a speculative grade next to you. I'm like, I think he's going to get this. 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 Puts that away, goes on vacation. The children take their tests. They get their grades. They come back. He comes back after vacation. He matches the two. He compares the two. A lot of them are the same. Others are very close. Are very, very close. How did he know? 
Does he know the future? No, it's out of knowing his people, knowing their capabilities that he's able to get close. When you're talking about Allah who created us, who designed us, who knows of everything in the absolute sense, then there's no mistake there. He knows what we're going to do. You know, this is like saying, you know sometimes when some thoughts play in our mind, let's say we see a dream about something. It's abstract. It's not reality. It's just imaginary. We've seen this beautiful dream. Getting married to somebody. And then, we wake up and you think, well, it's only a dream. But mashallah, two months down the line, you actually get married to that person. Your dream comes true. Why? Could you tell the future? Right? These are things that can happen to us. Where dreams come true. Thoughts become realities. So why with Allah, the creator of the world, and the creator of these thoughts, and the creator of the human being, the creator of intellect and mind and dreams, why can he not tell the future in this absolute sense? So now, because he knows what each individual is going to do with their free will, he told the pen to write it that way. The pen, the way it wrote, and Imam Abu Hanifa makes this very clear, he says the pen did not write in a way that said he will have to do this and he will have to do this. So it's kind of this forced kind of instruction, but it's a narrative, it's a description of what will happen. So when we are doing what we're doing with our free will, it goes in accordance to what the divine tablet says, because Allah knew from before what we were going to do with our free will. Does that make sense? That gives us some more understanding of this. Again, Allah is the only one who knows best about these things. But at least this gives us some settlement. Because I remember I was driving once, it wasn't that fast. It was I think around 80, less than 80. In America that's actually fast because 65 is the speed limit. Anyway, khair, so a police stopped me and said, like, let me off and everything. So he's, uh, no, this is your destiny. So I turned around and said, like, what do you know about destiny? Are you religious? Are you Christian or whatever? He goes, no. So I go, what's destiny for you? So he gave some, some convoluted explanation which I couldn't understand. Then I gave him this description. He goes, hey, that's a good description. So I was hoping he didn't give me a ticket, but he still did. <laughs> but it wasn't too much actually. Maybe he let me off a bit lightly, I don't know. But, but anyway, there's many aspects when you read the Kitab al-Qadr in the books of Hadith and there's various Hadith which talk about the different aspects of this. You have to reconcile them. But the main thing you have to understand is that a lot of this hinges on the knowledge of Allah. One thing we believe is that Allah does not force us based on His knowledge. So if He knows that somebody's going to go wrong, He doesn't just say, okay, let's put this guy in hell from before because he's going to go wrong anyway. He allows it to play out because what He knows is based on his eternal knowledge that what we're going to do with our free will, he lets, he lets us play it out. And then after that, on the day of judgment, we'll be punished. We can't reject the fact that we did what we did was wrong and Allah preserve us from being such people. But that's the way it is. Allah does not say, okay, from the inception, you know, these guys are all going to go to hell. Let's just put them in hell from before. Let them not even come into the world to spoil the other guys. This world, there's a wisdom in the way this world works, in the interplay of these different people. So, you can't really ask Allah why He did that, why He didn't do this, why He didn't just send everybody to paradise and to hell and so on and so forth. Because that's just the way He wanted things to happen. And I think it's a, it's a tough way, but it's a beautiful way because then you get to prove yourself and you get to get the love and the tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, Allah bless us and continue to bless us and give us His pleasure, ultimate pleasure on the Day of Judgment. Having said all of this, I think the next section should be very easy because that's what it's dealing with. It's dealing with the divine decree, the pen and the tablet. 
52. وَقَدْ عَلِمَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِي مَا لَمْ يَزَلْ عَدَدَ مَنْ يَدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةِ وَعَدَدَ مَنْ يَدْخُلُ النَّارِ جُمْلَةً وَاحِدَةً فَلَا يُزَادُ فِي ذَلِكَ الْعَدَدُ وَلَا يُنْقَصُ مِنْهِ Allah has always known the total number of those who will enter paradise and those who will enter fire. Nothing is added or subtracted, subtracted from that number. Think about this. This is not again trying to doom people. This actually relates to his knowledge. That Allah has known, his knowledge is so complete and absolute that he knows exactly and there's going to be no change. Oh, I forgot that guy. Nothing like that. Okay, I'll let you off now. It's not about that. It's about knowing what people are going to do and then they're going to enter paradise or hell. Allah has that absolute knowledge from before and there's no change in that number. وَكَذَلِكَ أَفْعَالُهُمْ فِيمَا عَلِمَ مِنْهُمْ أَنْ يَفْعَلُوهُ Likewise, his knowledge includes all of their actions which he knew they would perform in the world. The actions that you're going to perform, Allah knows everything from before. The philosophers, they said Allah only knows the holes of things, the general aspects of things. He doesn't know the particulars. The Rasulullah Jamaah said, no, Allah knows to the most subtle aspect and detail, Allah knows it. If you notice the hadith that we read, Imam Tahawi is basing his points on that hadith. Each is facilitated to that for which he was created. The judgment of one's deeds lies in one's final assertive act. The final sealing state. The final situation and state of the person. وَالسَّعِيدُ مَنْ سَعِيدَ بِقَضَاءِ اللَّهِ وَالشَّقِيُّ مَنْ شَقِيَ بِقَضَاءِ اللَّهِ Those saved or those fortunate are ultimately saved by Allah's decision. Meaning those who are going to be fortunate, they're ultimately going to be fortunate because of Allah's decision, not because of the act that they do. That just helps. Otherwise, the real reward comes from Allah's benevolence and generosity and His grace and not because of the deeds that we can actually buy that place in paradise. Just as those who are damned are ultimately damned by God's decision, by God's qada, by His knowing about it, and by His forsaking them. So as I said before, all Allah has to do is to take away tawfiq, take away guidance and protection, and the person goes wrong. وَأَصْلُ الْقَدْرِ سِرُّ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى فِي خَلْقِهِ لَمْ يَطَّلِ عَلَى ذَلِكَ مَلَكٌ مُقَرَّبٌ وَلَا نَبِيٌّ مُرْسَلٌ the essence, meaning the reality and the essence of divine decree is Allah's secret within creation. It's only something that Allah knows. No intimate angel or prophetic emissary has ever been privy to it. So no prophet has known all that Allah knows. So when you talk about the Prophet wasallam, and that he had a lot of knowledge and some people say he had all the knowledge. Being alimul ghaib is very relative. There's lots of things that are of the unseen that the Prophet ﷺ was given knowledge of. Over and above the knowledge of the other Prophets, the Prophet ﷺ, after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the most knowledge. But it's very wrong to say that the Prophet ﷺ has the same knowledge as Allah. Even Maulana Ahmad Rada Khan Fadil Barilwi doesn't say that. In fact, he rejects that. It's just the problem is that there's others who might say that. Okay? But that's an opinion which would be a serious problem to say that he has the same knowledge as Allah because Allah's knowledge is just so vast. Even Bajori says, 
ولم يخرج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من الدنيا حتى اطلعه الله تعالى على جميع ما ابهمه عنه من الروح وغيرها مما يمكن علم البشر به لا على جميع معلوماته تعالى he said the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did not leave this dunya until allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made him privy to all that which he had concealed about the ruh and other things which are possible to be known which are possible to be known by a human being not he makes this clear not all of his knowledge wa illa lazima musawatul hadith alqadim otherwise the problem there would be that the hadith the created being which the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is would become the same and equal to the eternal being allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so he makes that very clear Okay, the next point, وَالتَّعَمُّكُ وَالنَّظَرُ فِي ذَلِكَ ذَرِيعَةُ الْخِذْلَانِ وَالسُلَّمُ الْحِرْمَانِ وَالدَّرَجَةُ التُّغْيَانِ فَالْحَذَرَ كُلَّ الْحَذَرِ مِنْ ذَلِكَ نَظْرًا وَفِكْرًا وَوَسْوَسَةً فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى طَوَى عِلْمَ الْقَدْرِ عَنْ أَنَامِهِ وَنَهَاهُمْ عَنْ مَرَامِهِ كَمَا قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِي كِتَابِهِ لَا يُسْأَلُ عَمَّا يَفْعَلُ وَهُمْ يُسْأَلُونَ فَمَنْ سَأَلْ لِمَا فَعَلْ فَقَدْ رَدَّ حُكْمَ الْكِتَابِ وَمَنْ رَدَّ حُكْمَ الْكِتَابِ كَانَ مِنَ الْكَافِرِينَ If you've noticed so far, this is the second place that Imam Tahawi was very animate about his warning. One was the whole thing about trying to delve into the ambiguous matters. And the other one is when he talks about Qadr. These are two things which are not for the human being and that's why he's very serious about this. He says, delving into the decree is a means to spiritual loss a descent into deprivation and a path towards transgression so beware and take every precaution against that whether through perusal ideation or suggestion which means through either thinking about it pondering over about it brooding or suggesting such things god the sublime and exalted has concealed knowledge of the decree from his creatures and has prohibited them from desiring it as the sublime said in his book he is not questioned about what he does it is they who will be questioned hence anyone who asks why has he done this and some people die and some people will be weak they say why did he only take my son only take my kid could he find somebody else's kid to take these are blasphemy this is really really wrong to say that anyone who asks why has he done this has rejected the judgment of the book and whoever rejects the judgment of the book is among the disbelievers fahadha jumlatu ma yahtaju ilayhi man huwa munawwar qalbuhu min awliya illah ta'ala wa hiya darajatur rasikhin fi al-'ilm lianna al-'ilma 'ilman 'ilmun fi al-khalqi mawjudun wa 'ilmun fi al-khalqi mafqudun fa inkaru al-'ilm al-mawjud kufrun wa ad-di'a'u al-'ilm al-mafqud kufrun wa la yathbutu al-iman illa bi qubul al-'ilm al-mawjud wa tarki Point 59, he says, The above epitomizes what one with an illuminated heart among the protected of Allah needs. So all that's mentioned above, that's what, if you want to be a wali of Allah, the friend of Allah, that's what you need. This is all. In addition, it is the rank of the deeply rooted in knowledge, given that knowledge is of two types. Knowledge is of two types. The humanly accessible and the humanly inaccessible. So, one knowledge is that which we can comprehend the other one is which we cannot comprehend to either deny acceptable knowledge or to claim the un- inaccessible 
is disbelief. So we have to be very careful in the way we deal with these types of knowledge. If it's accessible, we can't deny it. Right? Like the sifat. And if we claim the inaccessible, then that's also problematic. Faith is not sound unless accessible knowledge is embraced and the pursuit of the inaccessible is abandoned. He reiterates things using different words. وَنُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّوْحِ وَالْقَلَمِ وَبِجَمِيعِ مَا فِيهِ قَدْ رُقِمْ We've already spoken about this. We believe in the pen and the tablet and in all that was inscribed. Again, what was inscribed were descriptions of things that were to happen based on what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew about what was going to happen. فَلَوْ اجْتَمَعَ الْخَلْقُ كُلُّهُمْ Now from here he's, he's talking about how Allah is in control of everything. And despite what anybody else wants to do, if Allah has not written that to happen, it will not happen. Even if the entire world and humanity and jinn etc. got together to do it. So he makes that very clear. And this is again is based on the hadith that's very popular on this subject. فَلَوْ اجْتَمَعَ الْخَلْقُ كُلُّهُمْ عَلَى شَيْءٍ كَتَبَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِيهِ أَنَّهُ كَائِنٌ لِيَجْعَلُوهُ غَيْرَ كَائِنٌ لَمْ يَقْدِرُوا عَلَيْهِ وَلَوْ اجْتَمَعُوا كُلُّهُمْ عَلَى شَيْءٍ لَمْ يَكْتُبُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِيهِ لِيَجْعَلُوهُ كَائِنًا لَمْ يَقْدِرُوا عَلَيْهِ جَفَّ الْقَلَمُ بِمَا هُوَ كَائِنٌ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ Hence, if everyone united to remove from existence what Allah the sublime and exalted decreed would exist, so anything that what Allah had decreed to exist, if everyone united to remove it, they could not. Likewise, if they all united to introduce something into existence that Allah the sublime and exalted did not decree, they would be unable to do so. The pen's work is done concerning what was, is, and will be until the day of resurrection. So everything that's to happen is written in the book, by the pen in the divine tablet. They're using this, that the divine tablet is all written, the ink is dried, the pens have been lifted. This is what's mentioned in the hadith as well. This is not to say that now Allah is bound by that. This is just to say what Allah did. And it's absolute. Like there's a question that does Allah think? If you mean by thinking about pondering, should I do this, should I do that? Hey, what this, what about that? Of course, that's beyond Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah is absolute in everything. He wills something and He does it and that's all done in eternity. So there's no pondering whether he should or not. It's done. He knows what's the consequence. He knows what the fifth level consequence is going to be and exactly the corollary effects. He knows all of those things. So Allah doesn't ponder those kind of things. Now this is obviously through a system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. And that's what's been described to us. It's not that Allah is bound. It's just that it's all based on His knowledge anyway. So it's not that He's bound by it. Furthermore, وَمَا أَخْطَأَ الْعَبْدَ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِيُصِيبَهُ وَمَا أَصَابَهُ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِيُخْطِئَهُ Whatever misses a person could not have afflicted him. If you didn't receive something, it couldn't have gone to you. You were trying to buy a house, somebody else bought it before you, it wasn't for you. And whatever afflicts him could not have missed him. See, the word musibah is a very interesting term. Because in Arabic, it's from asaba yusibu. Musibah Asaba yusibu means to hit the mark. Asabtu fir ramyi. You know, I hit the mark in my shooting. Musiba means to hit the mark. So a calamity is called musiba in Arabic, which basically means that it's intended for that person. 
It didn't hit the mark, it didn't go somewhere else. It, sorry, it didn't miss the mark, it hit the mark. It was Allah who wanted it that way. Now though we have our little bits of free will in that, the entire cosmos is in the control of Allah. So the way things work, the rain happens, the car slips, that's Allah's doing. Everything is Allah's doing. But that's directly His doing. Without any human intervention in that. Well, um, even that's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's just I'm very scared to speak like this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's, he's, he's the one who does everything. But uh, this is just for educational purposes. So whatever misses a person could not have afflicted him, whatever afflicts him could not have missed him. وَعَلَى الْعَبْدِ أَنْ يَعْلَمَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ سَبَكَ عِلْمُهُ فِي كُلِّ كَائِنٍ مِّنْ خَلْقِهِ فَقَدَّرَ ذَلِكَ تَقْدِيرًا مُحْكَمًا مُبْرَمًا لَيْسَ فِيهِ نَاقِضٌ وَلَا مُعَكِّبٌ وَلَا مُزِيلٌ وَلَا مُغَيِّرٌ وَلَا نَاقِسٌ وَلَا زَائِدٌ مِّنْ خَلْقِهِ فِي سَمَاوَاتِهِ وَأَرْضِهِ a servant of Allah is obliged to know that Allah's omniscience preceded everything in his creation. His knowledge preceded everything in his creation. He then measured everything out exactly and decisively. See, qadr and qada, these are two words that are normally used since we're in that discussion. The word qadr means to preordain something, to plan something out from before, provide a blueprint for something. And qadr then means to actually bring it into being. So qadr is kind of more instant, and qada is kind of more a predestination. Some say it's the other way around. So there's different definitions of qada and qadr, but the general concept you should have understood that this is Allah's predestination, Allah's pre-knowledge, and Allah's pre-planning of exactly what was to happen, and it's absolute, it doesn't change anything over time. It's exactly as He's always had it from before. So that's why he's saying, he then measured everything out exactly and decisively. There is none among his creatures, either in the heavens or on the earth, who can nullify, overrule, change, detract from, or add to his decree. It happens exactly as he knows it is going to happen. وَذَٰلِكَ مِنْ عَقْدِ الْإِيمَانِ وَأُصُولِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ وَالْإِعْتِرَافِ بِتَوْحِيدِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ وَرُبُوبِيَّتِهِ كَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَىٰ فِي كِتَابِهِ وَخَلَقَ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ فَقَدَّرَهُ تَقْدِيرًا وَقَالَ تَعَالَىٰ وَكَانَ أَمْرُ اللَّهِ قَدَرًا مَقْدُورًا All the aforementioned is part of the doctrine of faith, the principles of knowledge. All of these are fundamentals that need to be understood. And the ascent of His unity and sovereignty as Allah, the sublime and exalted, has said in His book, and He created everything and determined its measure. And He, the sublime and exalted, also said, and the command of Allah is an ordained decree. When He gives a command, it's the decree. It happens. What that basically means is the command for something to happen. There's also other instructions that Allah gives to the human beings, but they don't always follow it. That's a different command that He's talking. Here He's talking more about the will, where when He wills something, it happens. But Allah has told everybody to believe, but there's many who don't believe. So they're going against the command of Allah and they're going against the pleasure of Allah. But it is according to the will of Allah because He has willed for that. He has willed to allow that to happen based on the free will of the human being so that they are accountable for it. See that distinction? Even the wrong that happens in the world and the evil that happens in the world, it happens according to the will of Allah. Because nothing can happen without the will of Allah. He is the one who gives the ability for those things to happen. And He allows them to happen. But they don't happen according to the instruction and command of Allah. Because He commands that good happens. 
it also does not happen according to the pleasure of Allah. So somebody who is disbelieving and doing wrong, he's going against the commands of Allah, he's going against the pleasure of Allah, but at the same time, it's according to the will of Allah because that's part of the free will that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created in the human being. Finally, he says, فَوَيْلٌ لِمَنْ صَارَ لِلَّهِ تَعَالَى فِي الْقَدْرِ خَصِيمًا وَأَحْضَرَ لِلنَّظْرِ فِيهِ قَلْبًا سَقِيمًا لَقَدْ الْتَمَسَ بِوَهْمِهِ فِي فَحْصِ الْغَيْبِ سِرًّا كَتِيمًا وَعَادَ بِمَا قَالَ فِيهِ أَفَّاكًا أَثِيمًا Again, just beautiful prose. So, woe to whomever on account of the decree becomes an antagonistic with God. Basically saying, because of the decree, or in regards to the decree, he becomes a challenger to Allah, that I'm going to try to find out. Or I think I know. That's a challenger. A khaseem means somebody who's a competitor, somebody who's your opponent. Woe to such a person. In his desire to plumb its deaths, he summons a morbid heart. In his delusion, he seeks a secret concealed in the unseen, only to end up in whatever he says concerning it, a wicked forger of lies. And then Imam Tahawi begins to speak about the arsh and the kursi and other easy matters. But just a few more points on this before we take the other questions. There's a whole discussion among the ulama that because Allah knows who's going to be shaqi or sa'id from before, though we don't know until we die, at our death is when things will become real and apparent. There's a debate among the ulama, can you say that I'm a believer? Because you don't really know what's going to happen at the end. So between the Ash'aris and Maturidis, this is a big debate. Some say that you have to say, Ana mu'min insha'Allah. Some say, no, you can say, Ana mu'min. You're a mu'min right now. And be optimistic. And say, Ana mu'min. The others say, no, no, you, you don't know. So you have to say, Ana mu'min insha'Allah. There's that debate as well. I'm not going to go into its depths. But then there's also another discussion. For example, Umar radiallahu anhu. He was destined to be Sa'id. He was destined to be the Amir al-Mu'mineen, beloved of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger. But initially he didn't start off that way. So there's a whole discussion about whether he was beloved of Allah always. Or did he only become beloved afterwards. Now obviously for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's the last point that counts. For example, there's a poem that's related. إِذَا لَمْ يُكْتَبِ الْمَرْءُ سَعِيدٌ مِّنَ الْأَزَلِ فَخَابَ مَنْ رَبَّاهُ وَخَابَ الْمُؤَمِّلُ فَمُوسَى الَّذِي رَبَّاهُ جِبْرِيلُ كَافِرُ وَمُوسَى الَّذِي رَبَّاهُ فِرْعَوْنُ مُرْسَلُ That if a person has not been designated as being Sa'id and fortunate from eternity, like in the will of Allah, in the decree of Allah, if he's not been decreed as such, then regardless of who nurtures that person or brings them up or trains that person, it will all go to waste. It will all be futile. Then the examples that are given is that the Musa, who was brought up by Jibreel, became a kafir. This is referring to Samiri. This is referring to that one individual, they say that he was on a wreck, he was with his mother. He survived by hanging on to something or by being on something. And Jibreel salam, it's related, I don't know how strong it is, but it's related, that Jibreel salam fed him, brought him up, took some special interest in him, and fed him and brought him up. He became a kafir later on, despite Jibreel salam bringing him up. On the other hand, you had Pharaoh, who brings up Musa salam. he's being brought up and nurtured by a kafir, not just a kafir, but somebody who calls himself God, and he becomes a mursalu, 
meaning a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah make us from among the su'ada. That Allah take us and push us into that because for Him it's just a decree. For us, it's a lifelong struggle. You know, it's a lifelong struggle, but for Him it's just a decree, it's just a decision. We make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that since He's come this far, that Allah take us into paradise. So a number of du'as that help us in aqidah. Allahumma, just read after me, at least we've read it once, you can write it down as well if you want. Allahumma, inni a'udhu bika minashakki fil haqqi ba'dal yaqeen. Oh Allah, I seek your refuge from doubt in the haqq after having been convinced. So after conviction and firm faith, to become a doubter of the haqq. Another dua is, Allahumma, inni a'udhu bika min al-hawri ba'dal kawri. Now this is a big ha and a small kaf, okay? And it's just min al-hawr. Hawr, ha, wa, ra. Kawr, kaf, wa, ra. Means to unravel, to go back after being all firm and after progressing. Another one is from the Quran which everybody should know Rabbana la tuzik qulubana ba'da idh hadaytana wahab lana min ladunka rahmah innaka antal wahhab Don't cause our hearts to deviate after you have guided them. Another one is Allahumma la takilna ila anfusina tarfata'in Basically the beginning of that is Allahumma aslih lana sha'nana kulla O Allah, reform all of our affairs and do not entrust us to ourselves even for a blink of an eye. Because when you're not entrusted to Allah and you're entrusted to yourself, that's when things go wrong. And there's a number of other du'as, but these du'as should be part of our regular du'as of every day because seriously, with the confusion outside, it's very easy for people to become confused. Hopefully everything that we've read should help us in the various pitfalls that confront us and all the challenges that we see around us, all the affairs that are going on. Hopefully these things will be able to explain to us, make our faith more firm, and we should be able to understand all of these things and be able to help others as well, inshallah. Whether Iman increases or decreases, that will be part of the next session, inshallah, because I think there's some text that will come according to that. If anybody's interested, there's descriptions of the Lawh al-Mahfu. Somebody actually asked about this. There's descriptions about it, about the Qalam. Allah is jismun azimun nuraniyun kataba fihi al-qalamu bi-idhnillahi ta'ala ma huwa ka'inun ila yawmil qiyamah. A mighty body that's made of light okay, in which the pen wrote by the permission of Allah everything that was to happen until the day of judgment. And the qalam is jismun azimun nuraniyun khalaqahu ta'ala min nurihi that this is a mighty body made of nur, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created from his nur. So we believe in it. As Allah says, فِي mahfuz, noon wal qalami wa Some descriptions say the pen is the length of 500 years distance. And Allah knows best. But I mean obviously to write everything, I mean subhanAllah, these are massive heavenly bodies that Allah created. Let's take some of these questions. What is the status of our souls and its origin? In terms of being eternal or not, is it from Allah? The ruh of the human being. Everything is created other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the first thing. What is the ruh? There's a number of 
explanations about the ruh. Number one, Allah says, وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحُ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُوْتِيْتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا They ask you about the ruh, about the spirit. Say that the ruh is from the command of Allah, from the command of my Lord, and you have not been given much information. You have not been given knowledge except a small amount. Some scholars decide to abstain completely from any description of the ruh. Because they say we go with the zahir of the Qur'an in this regard. There's other scholars who say that there's a description that we have. What is the ruh? Well, the one thing we can tell right off is that it's a subtle body that is intricately infused with the flesh just as water permeates a fresh stick. So you've got a fresh twig and there's water in there which you can't tell how exactly it's infused Likewise, the ruh is infused in the body. And Allah has established a system by which life continues as long as the spirit resides within the body. And death takes over when it separates from the body. A group from among the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah has described it as a substance flowing through the body just as rose water flows within the rose. It's a very intricate relationship. They say that this does not necessarily contradict what Allah says that you've only been given a small amount of knowledge because all command belongs to Allah or that speaking of the genus of the spirit in general terms is part of the little knowledge that we've been given. That this is part of the small amount of knowledge we've been given. Although the strong and superior position is that its knowledge is completely consigned to Allah, this is the opinion of the majority of the Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Just an interesting point here which is related from one of the scholars about the ruh, he says that there's actually two spirits, two ruh. Ez ibn Abdis Salam. Majority say there's only one ruh. But he says there's two ruh. One is the one which if it leaves the body, you go to sleep. When it comes back, then you wake up. And the other one is by which you live in this world. And when that is removed, then you die. It's the first one which sees dreams. It's, it comes out and it sees dreams. Both of these are inside of the human being. And only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows exactly where that resides. Whether it's spread throughout or you know, whether it's infused or how it is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Another interesting one, you know the covenant we talked about. So it's been related that it's a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa which says, Al-arwahu junudun mujannada Fama ta'arafa minha i'talaf Wama tanakara minha ikhtalaf so Aiz ibn Abdul Salam, he mentions that on that day when that covenant was taken and the ruh were extracted, the arwah were extracted, some were facing each other, some were side by side and some were with backs to each other. Okay. And based on this hadith, what he's trying to say is if you hit it off with somebody in the world, sometimes you just see somebody for the first time and you just get along as though you've, you've known each other forever, then it's possible that your arwah were together, facing each other. And if there's some people it's just very difficult to get along with, then maybe your backs were turned to each other. Allah knows best, because there's some people who just can't get along with anybody. Maybe they were just like on a corner or something. Right? But Allah knows best. But the hadith mentions that, that whichever ones recognize each other, then they find solace, or they find comfort in one another. And those which don't find the other familiar, then there's some difference there. So that's the soul and its origin. 
So we've answered where is Allah. There's another question that came up is the story about the slave girl who was asked by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam where is Allah and she pointed to the heavens and he said who am I and said you're the Prophet of Allah and based on that he said you're a believer and he gave instructions about her. So some people they try to effect by that that Allah is in the heavens, meaning he is located above in the heavens. Number one. Imam Nawawi explains this hadith in his Sharh of Sahih Muslim. He makes it very clear. He says that this hadith has been explained in one of two ways. One is that uh, this is like the Salaf said, leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of those ambiguous mutashabihat. We leave it to Allah. End of story. By obviously also turning it away from any kind of likeness to the human being. We free and purify that meaning we consider Allah to be transcendent above that and we leave it to Allah. The second possible meaning is that the Prophet ﷺ was just testing her to see whether she really was a believer. Now, we make dua, we look up to the heavens, we face towards the qibla. These have just been considered the qibla and a unifying factor. Because we can't really know where Allah is, the heaven is just one place where there's a unifying factor where we can think because rain comes from there, provisions are sent down. That's why it's just the, the throne is there, the arsh is there. So that's why we look up and we do these things. So it wasn't to actually prove that Allah is there. This was just a test to see if she really was a believer or not. What supports this is a number of things. Number one, this hadith is muttarib. It's very problematic. There's other versions of this hadith which are sahih as well, which don't have this, that where is Allah in the heavens? He asked her other questions phrased differently that didn't say There's more than three versions. So number one, this is problematic. And to take one of those and to establish an aqidah which you shove down everybody's throat is really problematic. Number two, when you compare that to all the other verses, when you put that side by side with other verses and other hadith, for example, another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ says, أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُنْ عَبْدُ إِلَى اللَّهِ فِي السُّجُودِ That the closest a person is to Allah is when he's in prostration. So, how does that work with Allah being in the heavens and person being in sajda and that's the closest? So the thing is that we have to take all of these hadiths together, take away any meaning that is not befitting of Allah, and either leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or according to the khalaf, to give a suitable interpretation. And in here, the majority of the ulama agree that this was just a test, and it was not to try to establish the location of Allah. This was a test of a poor slave girl. ثُمَّ stawa إِلَى sama. That's another verse in the Qur'an. I mean, people have translated in different ways. Then he focused on the heavens. He turned his attention to the heavens. And again, we, we, we leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we say this in a way that it doesn't have any likeness to the human being. If Allah provides for everyone, then why don't we just sit at home all day? Well, the thing is that He's also told us to work for it. He knows what we'll get. So yes, if you want to sit back home and just wait for somebody to come and be sorry for you, that's also fine. But this world works with a system. At the top of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in charge of everything. And He's told us the way to do it. So I mean, why are you taking one command of Allah, which is Allah provides for everything. On the other hand, we are ignoring another command is to go and seek your sustenance. Both of those are from Allah. We take Islam in a wholesome way. If everything is predestined, what is apportioned each year in Laylatul Qadr? How does this affect the maktub nature of the tablet in pre-eternity? Laylatul Qadr possible to change decree very good question again this is one of those additional questions that throw in some confusion it's very simple that every year's decree is then transcribed from the lohul mahfuz and designated for the next year 
there's actually two types of taqdeer. One is called taqdeer mubram and one is called taqdeer mu'allaq. There's certain things which have been written to be firm. They're going to be that way, they're not going to change. There's some other things which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves contingent, but He knows from eternity which way we're going to go. So for instance, He said that if you're good with your kin, or with your family, then you'll be given barak in your provisions. Then He obviously knows whether somebody's going to be this way or that way. Right? So those are the suspended aspects. But Allah knows obviously. So He's privy to everything. But in terms of us, we have that option. But Allah just knows about it. He's asking the question, Ain Allah a bid'ah? Just like asking about the kayfiyatul istiwa. Absolutely, I think so. And the Prophet ﷺ just asked that just to test her belief. Can decree be changed by making dua? That's another one of those questions because what it says is that even dua can't change decree. But there's another hadith which Jazri has related which says, when you make a dua, the dua becomes locked in battle with the decree and remains like that until the day of judgment. But again, Allah knows best exactly. The main thing we understand is that dua can change maybe mu'allaq, the decree which is suspended, which is open, which is contingent. But the mubram, it's not possible to change that because that's something which is firmly established. But obviously making dua has its benefits. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we make dua, it's possible that those things are mu'allaq, they're suspended, they're contingent. And knowing that we're going to make dua, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will know and have decreed it this way or that way. As Allah knows who will or how many people go to hell, does that mean by making effort to bring people to Islam or the deen won't help or effect? I thought we dealt with this in quite a bit of detail. That's the knowledge of Allah. We don't know if a particular individual, a particular non-Muslim is doomed forever or he is going to become a Muslim. So we have to try because we don't know from Allah that this person's not going to be Muslim or not. So we have to try our best. That's our responsibility because we don't have the information that Allah has. How can Ain Allah be bid'ah when Rasulullah asked the same question to the saved girl, even if it was to... It's because of the way it's asked. See, the question, there's no problem with the question. But the problem is with what it brings about. The problem is with the confusion that it causes. The problem is with what is intended by that question. Is to basically confuse a person to that level that we can then tell them that, look, you have to believe that Allah is above the arsh in a physical location. That's why it's a bid'ah. Because it's taking you to this problematic belief which is not necessary. right? That's why it's a bid'ah. Not the essential question necessarily, it's the maqsad behind it. Can you please clarify if the Prophet's ruh becomes present in gatherings where immense salawat is being sent on him? Also, can the Prophet be present in different places at the same time? Can you please answer the question is causing a lot of confusion. Mawlana Shabali Tanwi in Nashutib mentions that the Prophet ﷺ can come in many people's dreams at the same time. That's agreed upon because we're talking about a different dimension. This dimension is very limited, but in that dimension is very different. So we can't really restrict that dimension to the limits of this dimension. Whether his ruh can appear or physically appear in gatherings, Maulana Shavali Tanwi says it is possible. Now that's, that's something to think about. It is possible, but it's not necessary. I can't hold a gathering and say that the Prophet ﷺ is here. That's problematic. But if he's observed, I remember Mawlana Yusuf Mutala, he mentioned that in Randir, I believe there was a program, a jalsa, a conference going on, a Bukhari Sharif or something. And one of the shayukh, he actually observed that the Prophet ﷺ was present there. 
But this is not something you can insist on and say that this many durushrif then he's definitely going to come or anything like that because that's not mentioned in hadith. It's up to Allah. It's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where he wants to send his prophet. Can we make tawassul from the awliya? Tawassul is permitted. But there's some scholars who insist on tawassul and make that a really big part of their du'as and make that a regular thing. Others, they say it's permissible if you want to do it, if you feel like doing it, just like some of the people did it as mentioned in hadith, then it's fine. But it's not necessary to make it like some kind of regular action. So there's some people who kind of emphasize it a lot more, some don't. And I've seen that when you emphasize it a lot, it really draws a lot of people away who are just new to this concept. I remember there was a program and there was a particular sheikh that spoke and he really insisted on the tawassul. And this person was just coming out of Salafism, was really thrown off by that. Can we make tabarruk from the Prophet ﷺ and other awliya? Absolutely. I mean, the Sahaba did that. Muawiyah kept something back. There's others who kept the hair. One of the women kept some of the perspiration. You can make tabarruk. You don't do like Muhsin Khan did where he translated it as souvenir. They kept the hair as a souvenir. La hawla quote illa Tabarruk is different from a souvenir. A souvenir is where you bring from Dubai. What should we do if we see someone with incorrect aqidah? Run a mile. I mean, you have to deal with it. I mean, if you can explain to them, you explain. And if you can't, then, then you leave it. You make dua for them. Please explain the reason for humans experiencing hardship to be due to being tested in terms of faith. Some say it's punishment from Allah for our sins. Which of these is true or are both true? Isn't punishment to be served by Allah on the Day of Judgment? No, punishment can come in this world. Allah has had many who had punishments in this world. Whole communities have been uprooted. The people of Lut were sent punishment. The people of Thamud, they were sent punishment. There were many punishments. That's proven through the Qur'an. For some people, calamities are a punishment. So for example, let's just say there's a resort area of Thailand. There must be some people there who have been in evil all the time. For them, the calamity that came upon them may be a punishment. But as others were completely innocent. It may be a punishment for them for not having stopped the others. Or it may be just a way of raising their status. So it could be one calamity could have very different effects and results for different people. So we don't insist that it's a punishment or this or that. We have to be very careful to say that that's a punishment on them because sometimes we are in a worse state and we're complaining about others. So we have to be really careful because only Allah knows that. Can you see Allah in a dream? It has been related from Imam Ahmad and others that they saw Allah in their dream, which doesn't basically mean that they actually saw Allah they saw something which spoke to them as Allah. But it doesn't mean that now you're privy to how Allah looks. You have to be very careful about that. Alhamdulillah, we've learned that Allah has created a cure for every disease. But would the one who believes that an ill person will not be cured except by medical intervention be considered to have sound aqidah? So somebody who believes that an ill person cannot be cured except by medical intervention. You see, we can say that we believe that these instruments have an ability because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made this a sabab, made this a means. At that level it's fine. But to say that he's only going to be cured by this, and there's absolutely no way that he's going to be cured. Like completely taking Allah out of the picture, completely taking a recovery out of the picture, that would be problematic. But to use means is fine, while recognizing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who is the creator. Can you please provide a reading list for further reading or explanation? That's a good idea. The Aqidah Tahawiyah translation is a good translation. Beyond that, Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar is one of the first books in English as a commentary of Aqidah. Unfortunately, before these books, the majority of works, in fact all the works that were done on Islamic beliefs, were very strangely done just by Orientalists. About 200 years ago, 300 years ago, you go into libraries, you'll see 
the oldest classical works translate. Fikul Akbar is translated about a hundred years ago already. So Fikul Akbar is quite extensive in that regard. There may be some parts which are more difficult. You consult a scholar about that or email us. But for the most part, it should be sufficient for us to get a decent understanding. Other than that, it will be a good idea to listen to these talks again. Because it's a lot of stuff. It needs to be digested. You need to listen to it again so that you can think about it again, clarify certain points. They'll hopefully be up on Zamzam Academy soon. The Attributes of God by Abdullah Ali is published by Amal Press. That's a really good book as well on understanding the more deeper aspects. In fact, Sheikh Abdullah Ali is going to be publishing very soon the Iljam al-Awam by Ghazali. It's a very, very complex book for those who want really the complex. There's books in Arabic to understand these differences as well. Hadihi Aqidatu salafi wal khalaf. There's another one called Bara'atul Ash'adiyin. These are for the more serious students who understand Arabic. But for those who understand basic Arabic, Maidani's commentary is really good on Aqidah Tahawiyah. The books that I was using today, somebody's asking, primarily it was based on Maidani's commentary of Aqidah Tahawiyah. I use Al-Fiqh Akbar, the commentary in English. I use parts of that which were based on research that I did before. And I use some portions from Tuhfatul Murid ala Jawharat al-Tawheed, which is Bajuri's commentary on Jawharat al-Tawheed. An absolutely fantastic book. If that's the one book you read in Aqidah, though it's an Ash'ari book, but it's a much later Ash'ari book, he reconciles between a lot of the points of the Maturidis and, and Ash'aris. Absolutely fascinating book. May Allah reward him. What advice should be given to a Muslim who committed an act of shirk? Example, palm read to understand future. We bring the hadith, the relevant hadith, we try to reaffirm their faith in Allah, trying to show them the verses about taqdeer and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and try to just increase their iman. Because people do this when they don't have enough iman, when their level is very low. So that's the best way to try to do this. Right, when bala was said by the progeny of Adam, could this be an inherent aspect of our fitrah? Like Mawlana Sulaiman Mullah says, no atheist on a sinking ship. Absolutely, that's what I've been saying. That's the natural faith that's inherent within us. Babies in the womb, apparently he remember by hearing their mother's and father's voice. It should be reiterated to them. You know, the dhikr should be made by the mother and the father. Can you go through why the Qur'an is not created again? Because it's the speech of Allah. It's His eternal speech. It's an attribute. It's not created. Because it's so mighty and we can't understand it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this version that we have. So the version that we have is created. But what it reflects of the divine archetype of Allah's attribute, that's eternal. You Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of us spending this time here. Allah benefit us from these works. Allah reward all of the scholars that were related to all of these books, the writers, the translators, the publishers, producers, the conveners of this program, and everybody that made this as successful, whether it's in food or organization, the brothers and sisters that were involved from the different groups, the sabiqun and others. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of them, especially those who attended, took time out, sat down, very complex subject, very difficult subject, but very important. Recognizing that importance, you came here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, open up our hearts for His knowledge and give us a true understanding of this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, bless us all. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam, tabarakti yadal jalali wa ikram. Allahumma rabbana atina fi dunya hassanah wa fil akhirati hassanah wa qina athab al-nar. اللهم اهدنا واهدي بنا واجعلنا هداة لمن اهتدى اللهم إنا نعوذ بك من الشك في الحق بعد اليقين اللهم إنا نعوذ بك من الحور بعد الكور اللهم أصلح لنا شأننا كله ولا تكلنا إلى أنفسنا طرفة عين اللهم ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وارزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه اللهم أرشدنا في الأمور كلها اللهم طهر 
قلوبنا من النفاق وأعمالنا من الرياء وألسنتنا من الكذب وأعيننا من الخيانة فإنك تعلم خائنة الأعين وما تخفي الصدور اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا اللهم رب زدنا علما نافعا ورزقا واسعا وعملا متقبلا وشفاء من كل داء اللهم إنا نعوذ بك من علم لا ينفع وقلب لا يخشع ونفس لا تشبع وعين لا تدمع ودعاء لا يستجاب له اللهم اغفر لنا ولوالدينا ولمشائخنا ولأساتذتنا ولطلابنا ولإخواننا ولأخواتنا ولأستقائنا ولأولادنا ولأزواجنا ولأقاربنا ولكل من له حق علينا ولكل من له حق علينا ولكل من أوصانا بالدعاء اللهم ارحمهم وعافهم وعفو عنهم اللهم اغفر لموتانا المسلمين الذين شهدونك بالوحدانية وماتوا على ذلك اللهم اغفر للمسلمين والمسلمات والمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات اللهم أعطنا أفضل ما تعتي عبادك الصالحين اللهم ارزقنا حبك وحب من ينفعنا حبه عندك اللهم أعطنا أفضل ما تعتي عبادك الصالحين اللهم ارزقنا حبك وحب من ينفعنا حبه عندك سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد